Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Juanced, The show that challenges popular conceptions, thinks critically, examines independently, and most of all, seeks nuance. Each episode features a different guest. We'll dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, tech, culture, and more connected to Israel and the Jewish world. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land and welcome to Juanced, the show that brings you a nuanced exploration of Israel, the Jewish world and beyond. I'm Benny Shoulder. I'm Dan Pfefferman. Excited to bring you another great episode of Juanced. Me too, Dan. Uh, but before I uh, get going with it, I'd like to give a shout out to our audience watching us today on Facebook Live. Thanks for tuning in. For those of you listening on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts and all the other podcast platforms later in the week, know that there is a live video version of the podcast, which you can check out weekly. It's available on our Facebook page. Uh, and you can check it out when we record or watch all our episodes on our YouTube channel, Juanced Podcast, as well as on our website, www.juanced.com. Of course, make sure you're following us on Instagram. We are at Juanced and on Twitter, at Juanced Podcast, to get all the updates, pictures, videos, cool infographics. And especially if we're talking about last week's episode, the exclusive video tour of Prohibition Pickle, best New York-style deli in Israel. And, of course, make sure to subscribe. To Juanced, we are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a five-star review. We've been told it could make a difference. I'm not really sure about that yet. <laughs> How you doing, man? I'm good. What's going on? I'm breathing a collective <laughs> sigh of relief for all of us. Uh, and, and, for, and for the Arab Gulf as well, Ariella. Uh, do you know why? Tell us. Because approximately 20 minutes ago or so, the uh, the renegade Chinese rocket booster uh, that nobody knew where... Have you heard about this? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, it landed, it landed in the Indian Ocean by the Maldives. So essentially, for anybody that doesn't know, uh, we, uh, we learned about uh, four days ago that uh, China had a rocket that they launched about two weeks ago into space, which uh, for a variety of technical reasons that I won't get into... Um, started falling back down into the atmosphere. Uh, I should say this was an, this was an 18 ton rocket, uh, started falling back into the atmosphere last, uh, last week or so. Uh, and, um, nobody knew where it was going to land in, in the earth. And it was big enough that it wasn't going to be, uh, disintegrated in, in or break up in the atmosphere upon reentry. And, uh, it just so happened that when they did find out the orbit of it and of where it might land around the world, um, there were about 13 countries that fell into that path. Israel was one of the 13 countries. Oh, shit. <laughs> as was the UAE and Oman, Saudi Arabia, Australia, New Zealand, and Costa Rica, and some other ones, uh, Italy, Spain, uh, whatnot. Uh, so it came in uh, and was detected flying or breaking up over the Mediterranean this morning. Uh, and then it eventually uh, flew over Oman, and there were some social media posts here in Israel and in Oman from bloggers that uh, that photographed it entering the atmosphere this morning, uh, around I guess around uh, six six a.m. this morning, Dan, and uh, and it just landed down in the Indian Ocean near the Maldives. But that could have gone a totally other way. So, <laughs> good times. Wow. So you're a survivor today, Dan. I, I guess so. You survived the great Chinese <laughs> rocket breakup because we don't have enough. 
We don't have enough tensions and crap going on, so we might as well throw a Chinese rocket into the mix. Why not? Why not? Did you know about this? You're you're an early riser. Yeah, I was watching it actually last night on TV here. Oh, so you um, we're talking about it. Yeah. Wow. But um, I'm, I'm trying to... Uh, More gifts. Don't worry. If I'm sneezing or coughing, I don't think it's COVID. I don't think. Um, I, th- I just have seasonal allergies, so don't don't worry about it. Dude, I'm going to the States on Wednesday. I'm going to get know. a COVID test tomorrow You're morning. You're flying. So if this it is shows your first up, COVID flight, your first post-vaccine flight. It is. Are you excited? Uh, I am a little bit excited. What are you flying for? I'm going to go visit my family in the States. I uh, haven't seen them like like many people for, for a very long time, so I'm going to be there for a couple of weeks. And uh, I'm a little bit nervous because I don't know what to expect at the airport because mm. uh, in the past, if it was show up, you know, Two hours before, three hours before. I don't really three, know. It's three hours. I don't before. really know what the uh, what the protocol will be. I've been told what it will be. But you're, you're a frequent traveler. What's what's the deal at airports these days? These days, I don't play games. When they tell you to be there a certain amount of hours in advance, that's when that's when I'm there. Um, but I haven't seen the Israel airport, obviously, um, because because huh, I'm American, so I can't see the Israel airport yet. But uh, for all the other airports, I think you sh- you want to err on the side of caution. I flew. Sure. I, I flew so. once. Pre, pre-vaccine, it wasn't as bad as I was hoping. Uh, as, I expected. <laughs> as bad as you were hoping. <laughs> as bad as I was expecting. He, he, he was, was hoping so for bad. a total nightmare and he was disappointed. Um, you just got to show up a little early. Um, be ready for mayhem. Have good podcasts on your on your uh, phone downloaded. Yeah, I think uh, I think two or three Rogans and you can you can make it all the way just fine. I'll tell you what, I'm looking forward to that flight though. You're right. Quiet yeah. time. Quiet time. <laughs> Quiet time. We're, but it's an interesting experience wearing a mask for that many hours on a plane. Yeah, not looking like forward to that. I my first flight back from Dubai, 15 hours, and I was like, uh, I did not know mm. that I could do this. But you feel really accomplished afterwards. So I think you'll have the same thing with your 12 hours going. But but can't you, can't you take off your mask while you're eating? Isn't that kind of the rule? Yeah, but I mean, there's only so many meals they serve on a plane, right? Challenge accepted. <laughs> A lot of snacks. I don't know. One of the two is going to happen. I, I, um, I flew back. I flew. I, I flew to Dubai and back on Ethiopian, and, um, I, you know, I, I tried to wear my mask most of the time. I don't know what the standards are at uh, Addis Ababa Airport as far as COVID testing and all that. This again, this was pre-vaccine, and uh, yeah, no, I, I wore the mask. I wore the mask um, easily most of the trip, plus the stay in the airport. You get used to it. It's not comfortable. But you get used to it. Yeah, it's not. It's not so bad. Anywho, anywho, before, before we jump into the episode, before we introduce our guest, so check it out, everybody. As you all know, Juwans is a listener-supported podcast, and we rely on the generous contributions of listeners like you to make sure that we can keep uh, getting great guests and excellent po- content on the show. And uh, and that and that really uh, that really is something. It's it's not something that we take for granted when we get contributions either. So if you would like to keep this party going, as they say, you can make a one-time contribution on our PayPal account or an ongoing ongoing contribution on our Patreon account. Uh, To find out how to do that, visit our site, www.juance.com. Yeah, maybe maybe consider something even like a dollar or two dollars an episode. Um, Show us your support and help uh, keep this party going. How many countries are we up to now, Dan? We we got listeners last I checked in 119 countries, like the UN of of Jewish podcasts. We have uh, Luxembourg. We have a listener in Luxembourg. That's hardly a country. I Sorry, mean, Luxembourg. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a listener in Mongolia and um, Yemen. 
<laughs> There's like a civil war going on, but we got a listener in Yemen. <laughs> Thank you, Yemen. Thank you, Yemen. But uh, Oman, Oman joined the game. Finally, we were waiting for Oman to jump in. We've got like, like 10, 20 listeners from Oman. It's probably Omar's cousin. It's not. I looked into it. Oh. It's not. But uh, have you have you been to Oman, Ariella? Nice, it's beautiful. It is. Okay, we'll have to check it out. So we're, we're chatting here today with the awesome Ariella Steinreich, Senior Vice President at Steinreich Communications, who oversees the firm's global corporate practice and its Middle East division. And I met Ariella because we both helped found the UA Israel Business Council. And so I see her lovely face and get to hear her awesome voice on Zoom at least once a week, and chatting with her more than I chat with my parents these days. And um, and Ariel's a bit of a badass in the PR world, and we're going to get to find out why. And uh, so we are glad to have her with us on the show today. How you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm a listener, so I'm really excited to be here on the other side of the desk. As awesome. They say. Awesome. awesome. Thank you. So where, where are we chatting from these days? Today from Bahrain. Uh, which is really one of my favorite places. I know everybody's focused on the UAE um, and there's a lot of exciting things going on there, but uh, there's a lot of opportunity here in Bahrain and what makes it so unique are the people. I mean, you just can't walk around without meeting locals who are so excited to see you. Uh, and I've been here before because I'm not, you know, I'm not Israeli. So the Accords, you know, didn't impact my, my ability to travel here. Um, but they're just so excited about the opportunity, what's ahead. They, you know, they've read a lot about Israel. They know about the tech scene and, and the fintech areas, which are, are both big things here as well. So um, there's a lot of opportunity. And I think in some ways, they really laid the groundwork for a very exciting partnership that's starting. Uh, but the momentum is, is definitely going to speed up after these direct flights start up next month. Yeah, they, they get the short shaft a little bit when we're talking about the Abraham Accords. It's always like with the UAE and Bahrain, you know, it's like, yeah. I mean, is it because it's a smaller country, like a much smaller country, right? Like what's what? Why is it? Smaller country. I mean, I think the latest is are like 1.7 million people here. I think in the in you know in the UAE that that I think it's like Dubai alone is is maybe about one or 1.5, but then there's like another eight million expats. So yeah. the numbers are very different. But from a business perspective, there's so much opportunity here because uh, Bahrain is really very tied into the Saudi market. So the businesses who are here have direct entry there. So what we're seeing now are, you know, a lot of Israeli businesses who are getting smart and saying, wait a second, like if I go there, when Saudi opens, boom, it's a domino effect and I could be there. And uh, it's really close, by the way, there's literally a bridge, maybe about 25 minutes from where I'm, where I am right now, uh, that takes you right over the border to Saudi and you could do like a day trip. Um, But I think the border is actually opening up in a few, I think it's May 17th that they're going to reopen, you know, because during COVID Saudi really hampered down. Um, And so that's a huge economic opportunity uh, for them here as well. But it's really, really lovely. Um, They have the only indigenous Jewish community in the Gulf, um, who are really, really fantastic. Uh, You probably have seen all the video about their, the shul that was recently renovated. So, I mean, it's so cool to to think that, that, that shul has been here for decades, decades. um, And really for probably some very historic moments. And now they'll be able to, um, you know, to use it, God willing, in good health with lots of, you know, lots of simchas and things like that. And um, the Torah came back last week, which was all over Twitter. So I think it's just really exciting. And and the, the vibe in the air is really just of pure excitement and opportunity. And 
I think coming out of a, COVID, a post-COVID world now as people are vaccinated. And, you know, I always say we, we talked about in history, like the space race, right. there was absolutely <laughs> a vaccination race going on in this part of the world. And it's so cool that the three, the first three countries to participate in the Abraham Accords really were the leaders, if you think about it, right? Yeah. Israel, the UAE, Bahrain. I mean, so much of their populations are all double vaccinated already. So um, it says just, something, doesn't it? It really does. And it and it, it says that I think that they're they're really they're looking for the future on exactly. so many fronts. You know, and they want their their people to be healthy. But what's so cool, and I've said this before, is you know, so many businesses were impacted by COVID. And so now that we're on the other side of, of the pandemic, it's so neat that not only are they able to go back to their usual market, but now they have new countries that they can tap into, right? And that's yeah. that's a huge opportunity. And Israel, Israel is like five new countries they never did business with before that now they can go and do it with. It's very exciting. What What's, um, what's a nice Jewish girl like you doing in the Arab Gulf? <laughs> <laughs> Having a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> Now, listen, I will tell you that the the last few years, we've seen a tremendous amount of focus on interfaith activities here, um, you know, and, and it's, you know, the um, the UAE had the year of tolerance in 2019. Right. I remember actually sitting um, at that conference when the Pope came and I remember saying, this is this is happening. This is going to happen. I just you could feel it in the air that like this was going to happen because first the Pope came. And if the Pope came, you knew that meant there was going to be some big announcement for the Jewish community as well. And why? Why, why did you get that sense? Because I do think that I do think that they've always been very fair on that front. Right. Like mm. they, they, they want to give to all their people and they knew they had a Jewish community there and they wanted to, I think, support them like they wanted to support their Christian community. Um, so I just remember that I remember being there um, and saying, like, this is this is going to happen. I just don't know if it's going to happen, you know, in two months from now or in two years from now, but it's going to happen. And what's crazy is, I mean, that was that was like January, the last week of January, the first week in February, I don't remember, of 2019. And sure enough, less than two years later, it happened. Um, you know, Bahrain, well, Bahrain's always been very focused on interfaith. Um, right. I'll never forget, actually, one of the first times I was here, uh, I visited the Jewish cemetery, and they told me that all of the different faith-based communities have their cemeteries in the same place because mm. the king believes that you come into this world equal and you should leave equal. And I thought that was such a beautiful thing. Um, and there's never been an issue of like wearing a kippah here or, or anything like that. Um, so I think everybody kind of thought it would happen. There have always been things in the news, Bahrain and Israel, Bahrain and Israel right. like throughout the years. Um, but again, I think when Bahrain offered to host the Peace to Prosperity Conference um, in June of, of uh, 2019 as well, Again, you just kind of knew it. Like I remember, you saw like you know Jared up there talking about the business opportunities. Jared talking, Kushner. Jared Kushner, yeah, talking about like you know the, the fifty, the fifty billion, and you just you knew it was going to come. And again, like you know, exactly a year, less than a year and a half later, boom, you know, there we are. And I remember, I remember September eleventh when I found out that Bahrain was going to now formally announce, and just thinking like this is number two. But if anybody who's been in the Gulf knows that it's a domino effect. Same right. thing with business. You get into one market and boom, you enter the next, the next, the next, the next. So I don't know if all the other four are going to be as quick, but the other four will happen. Um, and and um, optimism has always been the winning card in this region. So the, if you the other it, four, what do you mean? What do you the mean other four countries in the GCC. So like the Saudis, the Omanis, the Kuwaitis, and the Qataris as well. You think the Qataris too? Even I mean, for those who are less familiar with the Arab Gulf, um, from my short experience with the region, it seems that 
Saudis, Emiratis, Bahrainis, and Omanis maybe are kind of in step. And then Qatar has kind of been doing, you know, the tap dancing with an anti-Western sentiment, Islamist type. Well, they were like, like it has Al Jazeera. Basically boycotted by by the others. There right, was a the thing was, with the flights. They had to. There's, there's no basically. They were. Yeah, <laughs> they, were, they were boycotted. So how, how do you include They're like, Qatar? you sit in the corner. They're the yeah. they're one of the main backers of Hamas. A funny story. Um, I was actually in the airport the night I was flying from Dubai to Manama here in Bahrain. The night that it was announced that the Saudis and the Qataris were going to kind of end the blockade, and I remember sitting in the airport and saying, "I got to get my seat moved. Like I have to. Like I'm going to be flying over. Like I'm going to be on that first flight." I was so excited, and like <laughs> it wasn't. It was just not the first flight. Um, we still went around. In fact, when I came here, we still went around just a couple days ago. Um, but the reason I think I think the reason I think that they will do it is, you know, in general, there are, you know, people have a lot of misconceptions about the Gulf, um, especially when it comes to, you know, financial, um, because, you know, they were so heavily reliant upon oil. They are realizing and they have realized that they need to now find another you know, revenue source. And the reality is, is that everybody's really focused on technology and, and Israel's a leader in the tech space. So I do think that everybody will do it at some point. Um, in terms of Qatar, I don't know if they'll necessarily be the next one, but when five of your neighbors are doing it, it's a little hard to not do it, right? Um, so. And and just remember, like Qatar used to have that trade, you know, the trade office back and forth they, they had with Israel. Right. Um, they do, I mean, they do, you know, give money to Israel, you know, for, you know, for, for you know, for, for you know, the, the Palestinians. I mean, they, they do have. Right. There's there a, a, there's a practical relationship. It's very pragmatic. Yeah. But I, I just I don't know if they can necessarily be the only ones who don't do it. And, um, mm. you know, I think that even if you take a look at what happened with the blockade, it was really the Saudis, Bahrainis and Emiratis. But the Omanis and the Kuwaitis, they wanted to they wanted to kind of help mediate it. So I think right. if those two come on board, it would be really hard for the Qataris to just say we're going to be the only ones who aren't. And just remember, I mean, in 2017, in September 2017, actually, um, the the head of the World Cup in Qatar was asked by the New York Times point blank, will Israelis be allowed to come and attend the games? And he said, yes, everybody will. So, you know, that's a big step too for them. Sure. Um, but I think I think you'll probably see some more movement on this side first, is my, is my gut. What brought you out to the Gulf in the first place? So what, I mean, it's a, you're with your family communication firm, right? Yeah. So I used to be with, uh, I, I worked at two other firms beforehand mm -hmm. and I worked oil and gas PR and you kind of can't do uh, oil and gas PR and not end up in the Gulf. Sure. Um, and so that's really where this whole, where, where it all started from. And so because of that, I know a lot of the media here, uh, especially the foreign media, the foreign media in the Gulf, somewhere actually to the foreign media in Israel is really a tight knit community. Okay. Um, they very friendly with one another. In fact, a lot of the Emirati media introduced me to the Saudi media. Um, there's not a lot of foreign media here in, in Bahrain, um, but uh, the local media here is really, really lovely. Uh, and they'll have people who will fly in to cover big things. And so I became you know, very close with the media and that's how a lot of my friendships formed. Uh, I know a lot of you know, people just from you know, clients and meetings and uh, things like that, but it really started with oil and gas PR. And I always knew, you know, most people are not interested in oil and gas PR. It's kind of like financial PR. It's, You're right. Riot sometimes, but I always was fascinated with the Gulf, and so I knew that by doing that, that would be my entry point, and I've I've loved it ever since. It kind of kind of gets a bad name, doesn't it? Oil and gas PR, like the, yeah, the industry. Sounds, it sounds really boring, but I mean, we've I've done in my career. I mean, I've done PR on different drone technologies that go through oil pipelines, um, so that you don't have you know explosions and things like that. I mean, some which is a good thing. Is really which is a good thing. Well, I'm just saying it must be 
it, it must be hard. I mean, it's it's one of these topics or one of these these industries or issues that, you know, the knee jerk reaction to it is like it's it's in that basket with like big pharma, yeah, mm-hmm. and the like, gun lobby, the gun <laughs> lobby. It's like your merchants of death type. Uh, what was that movie? It was thank you for smoking. And they used to get together uh, the the lobbyists at the table at the, the end of their days, and it was like you had no. the uh, you had the the alcohol lobby and the 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 I don't remember the it. gun lobby and the tobacco lobby, and they would get together at the at the, at the end of the day. This was a movie. It was called Thank You for Smoking. But it was like a, a satirical. Type yeah, yeah, totally okay. satirical. And they'd be like, "Let's can you, can let's, you fix that light for a second. Yeah, I'll fix the light. Like, turn it turn, turn it upwards. They'd be like, "Let's let's uh, I'm blinded right now. Blinded by the light. That's Bruce Bruce Springsteen. Yeah." They would um they'd compare their death counts. <laughs> like who's the the tobacco one? It's like I I win by far. What what was your? I mean, how do you how do you get involved in the oil and gas lobby? Like how does that happen? Well, it's not the lobby. Not the lobby. Either. Sorry, the industry. How do you get involved in that? Listen, sometimes in PR, the way that it works is, um, and I'm sure it happens. It probably happens in every industry. Just it manifests itself in a different way. Sure. But when I came on to my first job out of college, uh, I quickly really picked up the media part of PR. You know, there's there's a million different elements of PR. Yeah, actually, um, maybe maybe a, a good place to start for, for anybody that's as confused as maybe I am, because, you know, lobbying, PR, these are terms that are floated, and, and, and maybe people don't get the difference. Yeah. What is PR? Uh, how does it different, differ from from lobbying? Well, take uh, us into the PR and, world. Like, give, us is, a, yeah, give, well, give us a... Yeah, give us a... First off, I I can't speak about what exactly lobbying is because honestly, it's it's not my space. It's not it's not PR. It's not PR. It's definitely not PR. Um, public relations, which the acronym is PR. Um, so it's really how we tell stories uh, to the public. So most of what you read or see on the news, that's not a breaking news item like you know like an explosion, like a car accident, something like that. Chinese rocket. Exactly like a Chinese rocket, um, but stories that you read about trends and you know uh, th- predictions and things like that, those are usually placed by PR people like myself, right? We we focus on an industry, or we have a client who's going to break news, or we have you know a client um, who's a notable name who's going to speak at a conference, something like that, right? So that's what we do. We help to tell, we help our clients, we help to craft the story. And then we're kind of, then we kind of match it with the appropriate journalists because where a lot of PR firms go wrong is they'll send the same story to a million journalists, uh, journalists who don't even cover that area. And then it just creates a whole big, you know, balagon. So part of our job is identifying who is the, the right journalist to tell this story to. And once you have a good story and you have the right journalist, then you get, end up with a really great article. So that's that's a little bit in terms of you know what I do. Now there's different media that we work with. So I referred earlier to the foreign media. So the foreign media would be international press who are in you know some of these locations like the Associated Press, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. Right. Those are foreign press when you talk about Israel or the Gulf. Um, then you've got local press, so or regional press. So in Israel you have like you know Yisrael Hayom, Yedioth Achronot. That, that type of thing. Um, in the Emirates, you'll have, you know, Gulf News, you'll have the Khalij Times, you'll have the National, those would be the locals. Uh, in Bahrain here, we have um, the Gulf Daily News, we have the Tribune, um, and then you obviously will have, you know, Arabic media, just like in Israel, you'll have, you know, you'll have Hebrew sure. media as well. So that's a little bit about kind of the media that we deal with. Um, we deal with print, TV, radio, online, you know, digital. And obviously now there's been this whole confluence with social media. And right. I think that's a really 
interesting discussion in and of itself. Sometimes news breaks on social media um, and then has a, has a cascading effect. In fact, I'll, I'll even give you an example. Um, sitting here in Bahrain, it's super relevant. But when they announced that Bahrain and Israel were going to sign the passport, you know, the green passport thing, if you remember, like the news was really broken on social media and then it went viral all over the place. And a lot of media traditional media wrote about it because it was on social media. So the job of a journalist today is so different than it was 10 years ago. Right. So you wrote a we we had an episode with uh, one of our very first episodes with was the veteran Middle East journalist. And he was an AP, um, AP guy. Shout out to Mark Levy. Yeah, Mark Levy, 40 years um, covering Israel in the Middle East. And, you know, we're talking about this. What you're saying is, is you know, it used to be, the, the traditional media, the newspapers, the reporters were the legitimate sources. And he said over time, social media has kind of risen up and taken this this primary role while at the same time, traditional media has lost a lot of its funding. So, And, and now you're saying journalists have to cover Facebook and Twitter as much as they have to cover regular sources and they have to tweet and get their sources. And it's like, like has it kind of lost its... The, the traditional hierarchy that we used to think about it? I mean, you, we, you know, that kind of like societies used to think about it. I think it depends on the generation that you ask. Yeah. Um, well, my father and I have this conversation all the time because we're both in the same industry. Um, and he, he very much, you know, print is, print is, you know, is gold kind of a thing. I think one of the things that social media has done, which I think is really lovely is it's actually made these journalists, um, almost similar to like columnists, right? Where like they were a name that, you know, wrote a weekly column. Now you have journalists who are known entities and like you almost go to them first for a news source. And you now, you know, you don't have to wait for their article to come out. You just go directly to them via their Twitter Because they're trusted? Yeah, well, yeah. Like I'll tell you, even talking about the Gulf, I mean, there there are a few journalists in Israel who... Anytime a story breaks from one of them about the Gulf, I know it's true. Like I know who, like you just know who they're like, what? Like who? Barack Ravid, for example, yeah. he's, he's never wrong. Um, you know, actually cool story. I was actually with Barack when he came here for his first time ever. I don't know if you know this, but Bahrain led in seven, seven Israeli journalists for peace to prosperity. It was so cool. It was the first time that Israeli journalists were ever here. Um, and he, I remember meeting him here and this was after working together for a few years already and turning to each other and saying like, we always said one day he was going to, you know, he was going to come here and we were going to actually speak in person. And it happened. Um, do you guys remember uh, Raphael Aaron from the times of Israel? Yes, sure. Of course. He also, I mean, his source is always, you know, top, you know, top line. So um, I do think, you know, sometimes I'll hear like, you know, scuttlebutt, but I, I always go to some of these guys' pages first to see if in fact, they've, if they've reported on it, then I know it's happening. Because you know their sources are good. You know, they're going to check their sources. Yeah, are... they, don't, they wouldn't, right. They wouldn't, because by the way, that's the other downside of social media. If you report it too quickly without having, you know, it verified first, you know, you're, you quickly, you know, as much as you jump, you, you kind of. You I, would, I would assume that that's pretty in pretty uh, commonplace also in in today's media landscape just uh, all kinds of uh, unconfirmed information that's shot out there and 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 I mean that has an effect as well too right because if you're if if a lot of what we're reading is not carefully vetted you know even if it's not fact checked per se the effect is still felt you know the shock is still there but you know, well, you know what, when the readers saying a, a, a lie travels around the world before the truth can put its shoes on sure. or something like that right and and by the time a correction is issued it may not be even read and the damage may already be done so right words matter i mean that's what it really comes down to words matter and and i think we see that both 
in articles, whether it's print, whether it's online, we see it on Twitter. I mean, how many times have people had to, you know, people had to, you know, kind of retract something that they tweeted or say, I took it down because, you know, I saw the feedback, et cetera. So words matter. Um, But I think one of the things that's so neat about social media is you also, the, you get to hear directly from the source. So like if, if a government puts out a statement about something, you don't have to wait for it to publish in the next day's print edition. I mean, think about this, right? Like 30, 40 years ago, what would happen? Somebody would, you know, a government would put a statement today or a person would put a statement today, then it would go into the you know, print edition, but you'd have to wait until tomorrow morning. Today, they put it out within seven seconds, the whole world has read about it, right? So right. there's a lot of really neat things that have happened. And, and by the way, I think when it comes to the Abraham Accords, social media has played a pivotal role. You know, I've, I've said this before, government leaders can decide we're going to have peace, but to actually have peace, it comes down to the people. Right? right, and here what we have are we have we have this robust group of, of what I what I've heard bef- you know be referred to as Abraham Accord influencers, um, and we have them in Israel, and we have them you know in in the UAE, we have them in, in Bahrain, we have sure. them even some of them in the states who take to social media to support one another um, when it comes to these discussions about the normalization between all these countries, um, and you know Dan and I we tr- we travel you know in in those groups because of what we do at the UIBC the U Israel Business Council, um, but we wouldn't have that if not for social media True. we wouldn't have the ability to connect i mean think about think about israelis who really for the most part have never had a conversation with an emirati or with a bahraini i have because i've been going back and forth because i'm on an american passport but they've never had that before yeah. it, it pre-social media it would have taken months maybe even years to to establish where we are socially with one another but now you know it's very easy i mean you know you see people like nora um you know and and and, and you see people like majid and and they're on there and then just naturally because we're all kind of following each other we then learn about another person who we should be friends with and then it leads to all the way having log bomer in the desert last week together yeah. i mean that's what it leads to but we wouldn't have that without social media so so actually i'll i'll this is a good a good part for me to jump in and ask you what I always ask Dan, which is it, you know, when you're looking at it from the outside, like I am, and I think I'm a little bit closer than maybe the average person just because sure. of our relationship. Um, it it seems to the person that might not know too much, when you're looking at when you're, and this is the same with any sort of a a, a bubble of in, of influencers. It could be any topic, but in this particular topic, it seems like it's it's like. You just name two names, Majid and Nora. I know who those people are, and if you're following this, you know who those people are. And it seems like there's like this core group of like maybe 10, maybe 15 people that I keep seeing on all kinds of social media. They're quoted in, in articles, their their photos. I know them like from their face and like I know their personalities. I've talked to Thani before. Like I, I know who these people are. And I always ask Dan, like, are there people in the UAE? And those are UAE people. I'm like, so I'm like, are, are, are those like the only 15 people in the UAE that are really excited about the Abraham Accords like or or is this like filtered down to the people too like if I was on the street in the UAE <laughs> would I find Emiratis that are excited yeah. about about the Abraham Accords or is it just Majid and Thani and like are those the only guys and, and because they're online it's just you know it, wow they're so excited but like is everybody as excited and I guess yeah. if, you know so what do you think I think it would be kind of unpopular to not be excited about it in the UAE. Dan, I mean, Dan, correct me if you think I'm wrong, but um, you don't really ever hear the naysayers there. You don't. No. Uh, but there definitely are more people than those 15. And actually, I was going to say when you said 15 is it also started with like 10. 
and then it became 20. And right. honestly, I think honestly, probably right now we're, we're closer to the 50 mark, but these old, you know, it, it started with a core group of what I would call like social influencers. Right. Then it became business influencers. And that's, but, but that also follows very closely to in general, how things happen in the UAE, big decisions are made. And then there's like a core group of, you know, business leaders or families who embrace it. And then it kind of trickles down. So in some ways, I think what you're seeing is, is, is kind of very natural, but what's really neat is, and I was just thinking about this actually the other day, I've met so many people through the core four, if you want to call it right, which then became the core 10, which, you know, so it's, I think that one of the things we're seeing is it keeps on it keeps on growing, um, and I'm sure Dan can tell you the same way that, that I can tell you that nearly a day goes by where I don't get a DM from somebody else saying that they'd like to you know they'd like oh can I join this event can I do this, um, and we talked a lot about the the Emirati influencers. I just want to reference the fact that in Bahrain, which had a slower start in the beginning, mm-hmm. they too have influencers. In fact, one of the most you know influencing you know influential of, of the influencers. It's more than even influential, but like, you know, is, is a dear friend of, of, of mine, um, Ahadiyya Al-Sayed, who's the head of the Journalism Association here. And in the beginning, when it was not cool to be, you know, to be pro this, she was out there in the beginning and she took a lot of heat for it. Um, but I think it's because of, you know, heroes like her that yeah. now that's had a trickle down. And now there's, you know, now there's a whole bunch of influencers here um, who I'm blessed to call, you know, good friends who actually have visited me on Shabbos before, which is really fun. Um you know, and so it's it's really it's had a cascading effect in that sure. respect too. I always say not all heroes wear capes, and I think when <laughs> it comes to influencers, that's the truth. Like they take a lot of flack. They a really lot do. Of, they really do. And we're see- what goes on. We're seeing. We're seeing. It's amazing. You and I are both part of this larger forum of influencers. We can call it, and and we see they, they're they're telling us they take a lot of flack in Arabic from the Arab world for, for what they're doing and they're pushing ahead with it. And I think we here in Israel, it's like, yeah, of course they want to be friends with us, but it's not so clear from their side. Um, and well, that's, that's kind of what I always would say, would say it would, it would be like in the heart of, or in the beginning of the Abraham Accords, which was in the heart of the pandemic, you know, there was such excitement here in Israel. And we, we got into that for many reasons. Yeah. It's like it was a really hard time and people needed something. Oh, it, was some it, of a it was also very historic but, for us. But right. it was extraordinarily historic for us. Yeah. And I wasn't sure as an as a, as a onlooker if it was as, if, if they felt it as such a historic moment. My, my sense, my sense from, from many personal conversations, and I'd love to hear your view on it, is here it was instant excitement. There it was instant curiosity that very quickly turned into excitement once we got the ball rolling. But it didn't start out as excitement. It started out as curiosity. And, you know, you mentioned the the 10, 15 people, and Ariella mentioned that it started with, you know, 10 influencers, and now it's like 50 hardcore influencers. That I mean, that that's kind of how the snowball rolled. And I don't think, you know, I don't think anyone was against it, but you certainly had skeptical people. You certainly had people... Or like, oh, this is the first time I'm meeting a Jew. This is the first time I'm meeting an Israeli. You know, not everyone travels abroad. We th- we think of Gulf Arabs as as, as people who, who travel abroad, but there are also normal people who live there who, who haven't traveled abroad and who didn't go to school in the West and, and all this and who never really met Jews or certainly not Israelis. And, um, you know, one of my good friends told me the first time he met me, he said, he said, bro, for me, this is like, you're like aliens to us, you know, Um we, we never met an Israeli before and, and he had met Jews before, but he's like, you're like aliens. We're just really curious to get to know you. I think once that getting to know you process started, that excitement came through. 
but but it took time and you're right you know it, it, you joke that it's like 10 people it's more than 10 well, they, people. they were like all on our podcast i was like it can't be I know, I that know. all of these well people i mean this goes this goes back to maybe like a, a social media and pr discussion um <laughs> i don't want to call it <clears throat> excuse me i don't want to call it like laziness but i think everyone who wants to get in the sphere sees somebody did an event and they see like someone successful charismatic well spoken on a on a podcast on a Zoom call, on a conference, whatever, and they're like, "Oh, you just I calling w- yourself charismatic and well spoken?" No, I was calling myself lazy. Okay, and um, and and you see, oh, Thanny, imagine, you know, these are like well spoken people, Nora, whatever, they're charismatic. I want them on my thing. I want them on my event. And so instead of like, because think about it, if if I tell you right now, you know, Joe Schmo, go find me a, a young charismatic, well spoken person in the Gulf who's in favor of normalization. Where are you going to start? You're going to go to the next event, and you're going to find someone that you saw and say, I want that person. And okay. so it's kind of natural that you have the same, uh, it's not an echo chamber, but it's, it, it is kind of the same cadre of people, at least at the core of it, that, that you're going to use for all these events. And I think that's just kind of how, right? I mean, is that, is that kind of how these things develop? I think it's also, I think there's an, a beautiful thing about having kind of now the core 50, or which I honestly do believe will grow to be the core hundreds, thousands, et cetera, which is, I think that you know, they support us, we support them. I'll give you, you know, a great example. You know, Yom HaShoah happened and- Holocaust Day for for our non-Jewish listeners, yeah. And you should only, I mean, the messages, I I wish, honestly, I wish we had some of them here just to like throw across the screen, but they were so incredible. Some of the messages that our Emirati and our Bahraini friends, you know, shared and they really, they stood with us. And I think that so too, we would would stand with them, you know, on a a hard day. And we have, by the way. And so- I think what you're seeing is genuine friendship. But to Dan's point, in the beginning, I think there was a fascination. Um, but then there were so many benefits that they started to feel tangibly that it was it was kind of just hard to deny it, right? Like, and and nobody, I don't think anybody came in skeptically curious. I think they were just curious about like yeah. what are the opportunities here, not skeptics. Um, but then you know they saw you know all the Israelis in the hotels. And again, you know, when your economy is so focused on tourism, which Dubai is really focused on tourism, sure. um, and you know, you have you know things shut down for months, then it's opening up, and now all of a sudden there are reports of 50, 70, 100,000 people all coming in one month. It's like, wow, um, there are new restaurants opening up. Well, new restaurants means people they have to hire. So there's economic benefits that way too. Um, you know, new new flights, people traveling, yeah. like all this impacts their economy. And it's very hard to deny that. You know, in January, I don't know if you guys remember, but Dubai, the like the media office of Dubai, put out a number. They said that since the accords, just Dubai alone, so that's not all the other Emirates, right. um, but Dubai and Israel had done $272 million worth of business. It's up to 500 now. It's up to 500 million in business now. Wow. How do, you, how do you deny that? I mean, think about that for a second. That, that's about, what, roughly about six months? So six months, and, and you said now five, you know, half half a billion with a B dollars worth of business opportunities. Who doesn't? I mean, that's amazing for your economy, both pre and post, you know, pandemic. Who cares? That's that's real tangible results. Yeah. And that's with Emiratis not yet being able to fly here because of the pandemic. Hundred um, percent. But I think once that opens 
and stuff, I think there'll be a whole lot more opportunity. Yeah. I mean, people here are so excited about the Gulf Air flights that are going to start on June 3rd. Uh, I've heard from many people. And actually, when I was something cute, the, the number, because um, I went on to like see if I could book it, um, the number they're going to call the flight to Israel. It's nine. It's a GF, which is, you know, the Gulf Air uh, acronym, 972. And oh, the one nice. coming back is going to be 973. And I've, I've always said, I think what's so, even just getting so basic about the Accords is the fact that 971 and 972 never spoke before. 972 and 973, most people didn't speak. These are the, these are the country codes of, of Israel and UAE and Bahrain. Right. So 971 is the UAE, 972 is Israel, 973 um, here is, is, in, is in Bahrain. And uh, I'll never forget actually one of the interviews I did right after for a client, right after um, the Accords, no, actually not even Accords, right after Bahrain announced that they were going to be part of the Accords it was with an Israeli journalist. And she said, this is the first time I've ever called 973. And it was so cool. It was so cool to hear that. That's really interesting. So what's going on with that? Is it they, the, the green pass, it's like a done deal? Bahrainis can fly to Israel and Israelis can fly to Bahrain without having any sort of a check or... or, or. Uh, honestly, that probably would be better to kind of look on both their websites. I can tell you, by the way, when I fly every time, I still go on the websites because I feel like these rules sure. change every five seconds. Um, so once the flights start and we hear from people who have actually done it, I'll feel a little bit more confident in terms of, you know, kind of addressing that. But I think there's a bigger meaning behind this and it's really important. It's this is really both governments saying, this is not just saying something to say something. We're, we're not just talking to talk, but we're really walking the walk. And we want to make it easy for our people to travel back and forth. You know, we want Israelis to come to Bahrain and to learn about, you know, Bahraini culture and heritage and opportunity. And so too, we want Bahrainis to come to Israel to learn about Israeli culture, heritage and opportunities. And so um, I think that when your governments give you kind of put all the building blocks in place all you have to do is just get on that plane and there are so many people who are excited about that and it's it's really it's exciting you know i, I think often about you know the um, video and the photos that we see when the nefesh benefesh lights land in mm. israel and i i just feel like that's that's kind of where we're headed with like you know these first flights like everybody was so excited when the first etihad plane landed and i think there's gonna be equal excitement when the first gulf air flight you know lands as well and it's gonna be a little bit of like that nefesh benefesh spirit yeah. right people like you know with signs saying you know you know Bruchim habayim, like they're really really excited about it and here and you know, i mean i know dan's been to to dubai um have you been to abu dhabi uh it was it was not open to visitors uh, last time, and I'll I'll be going back shortly, and uh, I'll be doing part of my stay in Abu Dhabi. I'm really excited to see it. Yeah, so Abu Dhabi is is absolutely beautiful. Um, has a little bit of a different vibe. Yeah, actually, Dubai. Um, a little bit closer to like Bahrain. So you have like three things, if you will. We have like Dubai and Bahrain, and then Abu Dhabi is like a little in the middle in terms of just like culturally. And, okay. But I think that um, I think one of the things that one of the things that we're seeing is just this genuine embracing of each other. Um, you probably saw the video of the Etihad um, senior executive who spoke when the plane landed in Hebrew. I mean, there are so many people here who now speak Hebrew and some of them might speak better Hebrew than me, just being candid, but <laughs> 12, 12 years of day school education, but um, a very good friend of mine here in Bahrain, actually, she started the first online Hebrew language academy and she she's filled the spots. I mean, people are really excited about this. And you probably awesome. follow her. She's one of these influencers as well asthma um sure. and you know i think it's i think it's really exciting that's awesome is it different to do pr we're going back to the conversation about pr is it different to do pr in the media landscape of the gulf than it would be to do it in the united states 
Well, the numbers are different. You know, in the United States, it's, it's a massive media market. Um, I'll give you an example. We have like 70, more than 70 Jewish newspapers alone in the United States. And if you take, if you considered like the Jewish newspapers, like a trade publication, right? Like a vertical, like oil mm -hmm. and gas would have one, home furnishings would have one, et cetera. That's pretty big. Um, you know, we also sure. have... We also have, you know, the hubs, like the, the massive bureaus and kind of the, the headquarters for some of the largest international publications in the world, right? Like, you know, Fox might have a few people in Israel, but they have like headquarters here in New York. Same thing with Bloomberg. Um, so when you're in the Gulf, it's usually, there are some pretty big bureaus, but, you know, it could, a big bureau could be, you know, 10 people, for example. And, and does media function differently inherently in a, in a because these aren't democracies in, in, in the way we think of American democracy and the media landscape has to be a little bit different, right? I don't actually, I don't. Is it, or is it not felt? It's not felt. You know, look, I'll give you a fascinating thing. Like Bloomberg has a very big bureau in Saudi Arabia. They cover real news. I'm sure sometimes they cover things that maybe they're not thrilled about, but you know, it's no, no, these are real, these are, you know, real real bureaus with real journalists who are, and, and listen, I mean, they've had to cover some hard hitting stories here, right? And, and they've done it with grace. And, and, and remember something, these are journalists who live here, right? They're expats who are living here and they're here for those jobs. Right. Um, and so I think, you know, they get a lot of kudos for the stories that they've covered, but they're really also ingrained in society. So they were equally as, as proud as, as a local Emirati when they announced, you know, that they were sending a woman, you know, in, into the space program, right? Like, but they, so they, they, they cover all those stories, but, um, but most of them are, most of them are, are expats in those bureaus, at least the ones that I deal with a lot of Americans or, um, or Brits. Yeah. Interesting. Wait, wait. I've been I've been on mute. Sorry, we've had a barking dog situation. Um, but I'm glad to know that if someone is snooping around my hallway, that she will bark. Um, my dog, of course, I'm talking about. Um, so, so I'm just kind of curious from a from like a personal perspective. Um, and I apologize if this question comes off as like kitschy or or, or whatever you want to call it. But what what's it like as both as as a woman and as a Jewish woman? Like a and, and you're Orthodox, right? You're you're like observant Jewish. What's it like being in the Gulf a lot? I mean, you spend a lot of time in the Gulf, Saudi Arabia. I mean, literally the entire Gulf. What what's that experience like? Do you ever feel, you know, so left out? I, Do you ever feel you have to hide things? No, never. I'll, I'll tell you an interesting example. Even before I went to Saudi the first time, I asked if I had to dress differently, and their response was, "You're a Westerner, dress like a Western." That was it. I mean, it was very easy. I, I'll tell you, I actually had a fascinating experience. I ended up spending um, Shabbos in Saudi Arabia, unintended. Um, but you know how things work here, Dan, you know, yeah. especially <laughs> the meeting gets pushed and then you're like, oh, I might as well stay. So uh, I was here, I was there for, for, for Shabbos and um, they really had taken such good care um, of our of our group and our delegation. And they noticed that I was eating, you know, like whole fruits and vegetables. And they, I guess in conversation, we must have talked about Shabbos. And I mentioned that I'm observant. And so the guy actually on Friday, he, um, he came over to me and he said, tell me like what time you want your fruit and vegetables to be delivered. Um, and he's like, I know I did my research and I know you can't call, you know, for room service. I'll take care of it for you. That's but. The hospitality or the focus on hospitality here is something like you've never seen. 
honestly, yeah. it's, it's really incredible. And, and anything short of you feeling comfortable and like you're at home is just not acceptable to them. So they, they want you to be comfortable and they'll go out of your, out of their way. Um, even here, like in, you know, in Bahrain, they, you know, they'll, they'll easily, they, they no issue. They, they know me, they go, oh, you need the elevator. They know exactly what to do. You don't even have to ask them, which is, it's, which is really cool. And look, obviously in the Emirates at this point, it's, it's become so normal, but I'll tell you, I, I jokingly, jokingly say that I've been in the Emirates in the days of the sand dunes, which is not really true, but it's the days before the Israelis discovered, you know, <laughs> the UAE. Um, and even in those days, you know, it wasn't difficult to do Shabbos there at all. Now food is, is so, so easily accessible. It, it is, wasn't yeah. as accessible in those days. Um, but, but yeah. Do they have, but even, like, I'm in just, sorry, just one, one quick thing. Like I'm here yeah. right now in, in Bahrain um, and the hotel that I'm in, they actually approached us a couple months ago. They said, like, what can we do to attract Jewish tourists and Israeli tourists? And so we said, you know, you should have kosher food because even people who don't keep kosher, when they hear you have kosher food, it's it's like a, it's a sensitivity thing. It's like you mm. respect your religion, you know, right, like- it's, it's a safety thing right um and so we connected them with uh with a client of ours who does certification around the world kosher certification and now this is the first hotel in the kingdom with kosher food and now there's like seven other hotels that are all gonna have pre-packaged but they're gonna actually have a live kitchen where you can get fresh food and everything so how, how does that work do they do they fly in a mashgiach once in a while or so i think it depends um on the thing well i like i know there was a delegation that went to saudi a couple of years ago and they needed a mashgiach so they flew in Mashkiach. Um Here, uh, a Mashkiach, um, by the way, is is someone who oversees the the kitchen and the food prep to make sure it abides by kosher rules. Just a kosher supervisor, yeah. sort of. Yeah, that's I think kind of how they would phrase it. Um, but uh, no, at this point in the UAE, there are actual Mashkiachim or certifiers who are there. There's so much. There's so much kosher food coming out of the UAE right now. It's really remarkable, and maybe that's one of the things for somebody who's been there for so long that stands out in my mind. Because I've always known Emiratis, and they never gave me an issue about being like it was never a concern about me being Jewish. Um, and the curiosity level was different for me because I wasn't Israeli. I was an American, kind of first and foremost in their mind. But the kosher food and the accessibility to it is is really amazing. Um, and here, when they've like when there's been a need for a mashkiach. Um, I believe that they've they've flown in someone, but now with this full time thing, they're going to have a full time person here as well. Can I have a bizarre question for you? And 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 really, you can you can chime in as well. Um, it, it really is a bizarre question. Do do you think that they are um, more inviting towards the Jewish the increasing Jewish Jewish presence because we are not actively seeking to convert people? Do you think that's Do you think that that like if we were a, a group of people that were trying to get in and mission, like being a missionary was part of it. That is a weird question. Would they be like <laughs> not as excited because they would suspect that we were out there to try to convert people to us? I, I don't know if that would have ever crossed their minds. I think that's, are, are you asking that because of the secret missionary that was discovered well, in ki- Israel? Kind of. I mean, because here we are in Israel and I think that there's a number of Israelis who, you know, rightfully so get very concerned about, you know, other groups that are here in Israel and that, those groups over time, I mean, I'll, I'll use the Christian group, the Christian population in Israel as a, or the Christian community rather in Israel as an example. The Christian community in Israel understands that there are certain lines that are not crossed both officially and unofficially in terms of their association with Israeli society. And it's actually illegal to proselytize here in Israel. So although it is a tenet of Christianity to try to, you know, make more Christians, they aren't trying, they aren't using the Israeli population to proselytize towards. The Baha'i faith 
who has its headquarters in 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 Haifa in, in Akko with the shrines. One of their main uh, one of the main agreements that they came to with David Ben Gurion at the onset of Israel was that they would not proselytize. Whereas around the world, they're you know they they heavily proselytize. So I'm, it just it's a curious thing to me. Like uh, I'm gonna say that might be the most like non sequitur question you've ever asked uh, on this show. It's an interesting one, but that that came out of left field. Um, I'd say a few things. First, I, I think, and, and I'm I'm basing this on my sense and, and having done research in this area before, I think Middle Eastern Christians are much less proselytizing well, than sure. Western Christians. It's a dangerous thing to do. I, I, yeah, I think, I mean, I, from my experience with, with indigenous Christians to the Middle East, specifically Arab Christians, not just, they don't proselytize because uh, I think they're used to being a minority just like we are. Right. And minorities tend to not proselytize. It's, it's dangerous. Um, in Israel, from my understanding, they don't, that's not even, it's not something that they wish they would do. It's just they keep to themselves in that sense. And the the proselytizing is, is Western Christians. Um, and we've had that, by the way, since the 1800s when, when, you know, during the Ottoman days when it started opening up. I don't know if Arabs specifically Gulf Arabs and majority Arab countries, Arab Muslim countries are even thinking about that. And I think that's not even an issue. It's only me. <laughs> no, I don't think they would have I mean, even thought about that. Um, I, the, you know, the one thing that does come to my mind is that I found a, as, as an observant traditional Jew, I connect very easily to observant Muslims. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I don't think it's factored in yeah. at all, but I think, they see a lot of commonalities with us. And, and the respect for tradition, they, they respect the respect for tradition. They respect, you know, I, I, I don't want to go back to the conversation we had last week, but like the, the keeping kosher because they keep halal and some of them keep halal more strictly than others, just like some of us keep kosher more strictly than others. They connect to that instantly. Um, fasting. They fast, uh, they fast for a month on Ramadan, but we fast, you know, there's a few days throughout the year where we fast. They connect to that. So, so I, I think they, once you can get past the, the politics of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and that's a big if because there's layers and years of propaganda that both sides are trying to get over, on a religious level, I think we can connect very easily. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, look, you know, I, um, I've hosted many of my Emirati friends for, you know, for Shabbat meals. And there's always like this sense of, oh, this is what, like, you know, this is, this is kind of similar for, for their experiences. Yeah. Um, and they genuinely enjoy it. I think also like just another example is all these Lagba Omer iftars that happened in the last couple of weeks. Like how cool is it that we both have holidays that coincide and right. we got to celebrate each other's and because there's this familial feel to it they really want us to come to their tables and we really want them to come to our tables and experiencing you know a shabbat meal with emiratis is is it's really interesting i mean like they ask really good questions really good questions and they're constantly saying oh that's similar to what we do in this like there's a lot of that so maybe that goes back to dan's original point about kind of the curiosity but there's this desire of we we will make this region better if we are more understanding and learn about each other. And that's, I think, kind of where it all comes down to. It's it's this desire to propel everything forward and knowing that what makes, you know, peace makes us more educated and peace brings us more opportunity. And if we do that now and we cement it 
now, then the future generations will know that we'll, we'll never know of a chasm, right? Like yeah. it'll be normal for, you know, for, for, you know, for, for this next generation, for our kids to then go to school with Emiratis and Bahrainis and God willing one day with Saudis and, you know, and, and Qataris and Omanis and Kuwaitis, like that will just be normal. And Palestinians. Um, yeah. That'll be the hardest nut to crack. Look, um, you, you know, I, I don't want to get into what's happening now here in Israel because I, I frankly haven't studied enough to have a learned opinion. Um, but, you know, this is kind of the first time since the Abraham Accords where there's tensions here. And, you know, we're, we're talking about it on the group. And, and you know, you know what, what can you say? I mean, it, it's clearly a complicated issue. I'm not, gonna, I'm not even going to get into blaming one side or the other. It, you know, it takes two to tango here. And, and it's just one of these things where, like, th- that's going to be the hardest nut to crack. We don't have a border with Saudi Arabia. We don't have a border with the UAE. We don't have, we don't have direct tensions or conflicts right. with these countries. And, and so we're seeing it right now, and it, it's, it's fascinating. Um, well, but, I, I can say from my perspective, um, as, as, as an Israeli, someone who, who lives in Israel, I would hope that the Israeli people would be uh, encouraged to open themselves up more to, to the idea of, of peace with their neighbors be, and, and be inspired by the peace that we're forging with, with Arabs in the Gulf. That's one, one of my hopes. To be more open to, yeah. to, the, to the culture, at Look, least. One of my big hopes that came out of this, and I'm seeing it, is, is that you know we, we were conditioned here because of the circumstances, and I think so were they, for so long to think of, of Arabs as the other, as the enemy, as someone who wants to destroy us, as someone who wants to throw us into the sea, um, and, and that you have to be defensive and you have to be willing to fight. And, 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 and if anything is coming out of this, it's like, you know, what, what I hope could, how this could affect the Israeli-Palestinian issue down the road, it's not going to be instant, is that over time, those Israelis, which has become a majority, who, who view Arabs as the enemy, are starting to view Arabs as people, as possible friends, as potential friends, as we have a lot in common, as, you know, this is, you mentioned a domino effect, Ariella. There's a domino effect in so many ways here, and that's that's what's incredible about this, and I I really don't want to sound all, you know, hippie, peace-loving, because I'm I'm not really that kind of person. No, you hate, you you love war. (laughs) You don't love peace. No, but, uh, no, I love, of course I want peace, but, but I'm also very much a realist. And I saw you eat granola before this podcast. I don't, I don't eat granola. Um, I had a protein shake with bananas and blueberries. That's what my nutritionist has me on a protein shake every morning. Um, but, but it's one of these things where, you know, and, and we can, we can loop this back to social media and things that until 20 years ago, maybe even 15 years ago, we were all reliant on the major press outlets uh, state-run media in a lot of countries that don't have free press. And even in countries that do have free press, there's still a controlled narrative to some extent. And, and I'd love to hear you talk about this, Ariella. And when social media opened up, and, and, and I've been doing a lot of social, I've been doing a lot of digital and social media PR advising over the past couple of years. Um, so I see this from the other direction. And it's really fascinating to see how the tables I think have kind of turned and then how everyone's kind of had to get on board with the fact that, you know what, I don't need to read Al Jazeera anymore. I can now talk to friends in the Gulf or at least friends of friends. I think I could easily now, you know, through this network that I now have 
I'm getting Facebook and Twitter friend requests from people all over the Arab and Muslim world on a daily basis. Um, sadly, I, I reject most of them just because I don't want to have too many Facebook friends I don't know personally. But um, it, it's crazy how we can just reach out to each other and we can talk to each other. And yes, you know, the danger of that is that false messaging and people who take advantage of this to incite and spread propaganda can go really far, but also people to people can go really far. And that's something that we can do now um, via social media that you don't need AP to report anymore or the, the state controlled narrative. No, you, don't need the, you don't need the mediator. You, do, you don't need it. I mean, we're, we're all on there now. And so, yeah, there's a lot of challenges on there because people, there are people who, who propagandize for, for all sides um, and, and who try to take advantage of these forms and who try to spread misinformation, but there are also real people talking and that's something we never used to have anymore. Well, I think a couple things, a couple points I'd want to make on that. Um, number one is that it's really important. I know that Israelis have said for years, Arabs, 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 but it's really important to understand that we actually have Arab family in the Gulf, meaning the Jews of Bahrain are, are Arabs because Arabs is a geo tag. So I think one of the things that hopefully we're going to start to see is people kind of being more specific on their, like on, on using that word, because it is important. I mean, yeah, there are Jewish Arabs living in the Gulf. Um, you know, the, the Jews in Bahrain are indigenous. They are, they are real Gulfian Jews. Um, so they are part of that. But, you know, so I, I think we should differentiate that a little bit. Now, there, to your point before, though, in terms of media and social and things like that, I think that there's and I have to, I have to say this as a media person, right? Like there's pros and cons sure. to, I think that the, the lag time, let's say in traditional print papers is a little bit tricky when you have something like this, which is developing so quickly, but like, you know, take, for example, even just the announcement, like, I think we'll all remember where we were the moment both of these countries announced. Um, one thing I found kind of ironic is that the U.S. kept on doing the announcements and they kept on doing it. Um, even Sudan followed suit the same thing. Like they kept on doing it when it was Shabbat in Israel. I don't yeah, know if you guys remember that. I do. So it was annoying. Like, right. Well, most of the diplomatic correspondents in Israel are Shomer Shabbat. So like I'll never forget, like I'll never forget. It was probably like 8, 30, 9 o'clock in the morning on Friday morning, September 11th. And I got two WhatsApps from very influential diplomatic journalists here. Well, there actually, I should say in Israel saying, can you just tell us like, is it true? Is it, is it going to happen today? Because if so, we have to put people like, we have to let the desk know because the desk doesn't necessarily know all the nuances. And so like some of these journalists were actually like pre-writing articles, assuming it was going to happen because they were going to be offline. So there are definitely positive and negatives to both. But I just want to say that social media, there also are concerns on the social media side because, yeah. you know, you know, somebody has a lot of followers, we just automatically assume that like they're, they're in, they're in the know, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're actually in the know. So I would just say that like getting our news directly from social media can also sometimes not necessarily be the, the best move. Well, so I think you actually yeah. need the two to, to, to have like a really informed opinion, because at the end of the day, when you want something like this, like something as heavy as this topic, you want to hear from the person who hears it from the sources that are actually signing the paperwork. Right. And those are people and they're giving the news to the media they're not giving it to the social media influencers but when you want to know about the impact that these accords have that's where you should then you know produce social media and see the opportunity and what's coming on there but you need two on this one isn't isn't that kind of inherently if we're talking about the mass the masses isn't that kind of inherently a problem if you don't have people that are trained to understand that they need to do that meaning 
if I don't know, if I'm not a part of my generation, let's say I'm my father, okay? My father's 70, 76 years old now. His birthday was last week. And, and, and he, thank you. And he's like, you know, legacy media. That's what, that was his thing. I mean, he grew up in the days of Walter Cronkite. You know, you trusted, you trusted the media. He doesn't know that, you know, you should check into social media if you want to hit up things that are developing quickly on the ground. But if you want to hear an official announcement, you should watch CNN. It's like he's just watching CNN. And, well, he's probably watching Fox, but that's a different story. But it's like, you know, yeah, you, but you have like millions of people around the world that are just probably like either they don't know or they're lazy or they don't have the time. And they don't know that they have to be a more savvy media consumer to get the full picture these days. They just, they go to their default. And that default for other people might not be the legacy media, might be the social media crowd. Who Or, or I remember, uh, you know, growing up, um, Dan, you know, Dan and I went to college around the same time that uh, Jon Stewart had just, you know, taken up the position on The Daily Show. And it was like, you had this whole group of people who were getting their news solely from Jon Stewart and The yeah, Daily brilliant. Show. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. But probably not the best idea if you want Good news. You know what? You know what? He reported the news and then gave a commentary on it. Right, but the commentary often formed the narrative of what sure he did. Sure did. It was, it was a liberal, sat- satirical commentary. Right, exactly. But, but he reported the news first. It's not like he was making up news. I don't know. I think it depends on what you're looking to get out of the story. You know, I'm the first to admit... Um, that I am an absolute golf nerd. And so I, you know, I soak this stuff up, but like, it's just so exciting. Every single day there is a new development. It doesn't matter. It's like, you know, when they say miracles come in all shapes and sizes, Mm -hmm. like you could have Accords announcements or you could have, you know, two companies now announcing something, or you can have two hospitals coming and saying, we're gonna, we're gonna share knowledge. I mean, every single day there's something. And if you look hard enough, you will find at least one or two things every day, but you have to like, again, it, it depends on, on how you use the news. If you're the person who uses the news just to know what's going on around me to keep up to date, then probably the newspapers and TV are fine. Um, if you're somebody who's saying, what's the impact that the news has? See, yeah. that's, I think, the difference between the two. I don't necessarily, um, except if it's a journalist, then I go to, then I consider what I get on on um, on social media to be the news, but otherwise I go more to see the impact. And that's not even in just this space, you know, like we represent um, the home furnishings industry, we represent a whole bunch of clients there. So if I want to see trends, you know, I'll follow some of the people in, you know, in, in those spaces as well. But um, when, when I want to get the news, I still think I want to get it. I know, not that I think, I know I want to get it from a journalist because I can trust that source much, much more. Yep. And if you, if you're consuming the news to be properly informed, then you want to be informed by the right people. Right. So I mean, that would be me, but I'll turn it to you guys for just a second. Like when you get up in the morning, how do you consume your news? Where does your news come from usually? Dan? I, well, I don't know if I'm a good example just because of my background and, and how I had, I had to be trained to consume news. Um, <clears throat> um, there are a number of media outlets I follow and that I get their, their feeds on my phone. Uh, Israel and international AP um, you know, Jerusalem Post, just to keep it simple. And uh, and I watch the Israeli nightly news every day. Um, and social media, I look on social media um, just to see what kind of things people... Are. I always love watching the discrepancy between Israeli news versus foreign news, between Israeli social media, and I have here very conservative friends and very liberal friends, very American friends, very Israeli friends. And then, of course, with my American feed and... 
yes, I know a lot of American Jews, both conservative and, and liberal, but I also, because I grew up in a very non-Jewish area and I'm, I remain at least Facebook friends with a lot of my high school non-Jewish friends, um, I, I see their feeds as well. And of course, some of them are more progressive and a lot of them are more conservative. And so I'm, I'm getting, you know, I try to get a picture out of that. I don't think a lot of people are doing that. I think a lot of people get stuck in, in echo chambers. But because of my background in intelligence, I had to learn how to read the media, like from a discerning point of view. Because today, you know, and we've had a few intelligence episodes with intelligence officers, et cetera. Um, open source intelligence is, is one of the most important is probably the most important source of intelligence in foreign affairs today. If, you, if you're a, you know, this is something that we, we kind of go back to this and this dovetails with a lot of other episodes we have. Um, people always talk about conspiracies and government conspiracies and this and how intelligence, most, I don't, I don't want to give a number, but a lot of what intelligence analysts in classified organizations are doing to understand the world you know, I'm not talking about what happened between two terrorists on a phone call, but I'm talking about major trends. It's all open source. It's how do you, you have to learn how to approach the internet. You have to learn, you know, you mentioned Barack Ravid and, and Raphael Aaron. You learn which media sources are accurate. You learn which people are more insightful. You learn, I remember Barack Ravid back in the day, and I was taught, always follow Barack Ravid. He's got good sources. It's funny you mentioned him, but I remember that from, from, 15 years ago, always following Barack Ravid. You remember he did this series, it was amazing. It was probably about two, maybe two and a half years ago. It was called Secrets of the Gulf. Do you remember that? No. He did this on Channel 13. You should, and, and everybody who's listening, you should absolutely go and find them online. They were fantastic. Secrets uh, of the Gulf. It was a series. It was called Secrets of the Gulf. Um, so shout out to, to Barack for this one, but it was fantastic. Um, and he basically, it was about Israel's like secret relationship with some of its Gulf friends. Okay. Um, there was the first one he did was on Saudi. It might have even been a two-part a two part one on Saudi. I could be wrong on that. Um, I believe Bahrain and possibly Oman he did. Um, but anyway, the point is on Saudi, there was a Saudi prince who spoke to him for that. I mean, that's when I say to you when you want the sources that, like you want to go to people who have the sources who really do, um, you know, kind of move, move things forward. So um, the reason I asked the question though is, you know, one of the first things that I do uh, is, Aside from waking up at an ungodly hour to kind of consume do you, all do you sleep? Various clients, yes, I do sleep. Um, contrary to popular belief, but because uh, we're like chatting at two in the morning, and then you're up at like say, I don't. How do you? Uh, <laughs> so Dan's referencing the uh, our weekly calls at it's it's at two thirty in the morning New York time. Um, but I oh, love God. to call someone. I have absolutely, I have no, um, I have no, I, I'm totally fine getting up for it. It, it really kind of. It gets me juiced for the day. You know, it's exciting. I think I'll just kind of go back for a second. But when you're when people are so passionate about this new Middle East, it's so easy to be motivated to participate in it. You know what I mean? But the reason I ask the question is that, you know, for me, one of the first things I do is I open up Twitter in order to see like, okay, what are like the top things coming out of the national, coming out of the, the GDN, which is the acronym here for the Gulf Daily News. Mm. Um, you know, the top stories coming out of the Jerusalem Post and the Times of Israel. Like that's how I, you know, kind of get some of my, my news right off the bat. And then I kind of tear it off into them looking at specific journalists. And so, you know, I always always go straight to Lahav Harkov, for example, the Jerusalem Post. She's also really, really fantastic. Okay. Um, when anything, you know, diplomatic um, you know, on that front. Um, but anyway, the point is that's, that's how I consume my news. Then of course, cause it's in the feed naturally, you see, you know, what are the influencers saying? But again, 
the influencers, I, I think more that they talk about the impact that the news and the news development has on it. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. That's how they view it. Are Absolutely. there any, are there any uh, really great um, golf journalists that we in Israel can follow? Yes, um, there's tons. Uh, you know, it's funny, actually, I was recently asked to put together a list, um, but uh, but there are a ton. I, look, I would say it depends. It really depends on kind of the sector, you know, that, that you're in and that you're focusing on. Um, but there are many in terms of, you know, Al Arabiya English, we haven't spoken about that, but Al Arabiya English also does a really good job in terms of covering um, a lot of the Israel developments. Uh, and that was actually, I think, really the first the first person there to start it was a good dear friend of mine, um, Emily Judd, who oh, yeah. the first I think Emily's first piece was actually about the kosher food um, that was coming out of the UAE. And now um, and now Jennifer Bell is taking that that kind of beat over. It's funny, it's, it's weird to call it a beat because it's not yet actually a beat Israel, you know. Um, but I think what you're starting to see is there's there's journalists who naturally really um, are fascinated and enjoy this area. And so they've become the beat reporter. Um, you know, look, talking about media, we can't not talk about another good friend of mine, Michal Divon. I mean, she's sure. literally made She's the first Israeli uh, to ever write, and, and now she didn't, she was writing that she does you know videos for, but um, for the Khalish Times in the Emirates. I mean, you know, that's that's really incredible. I mean, I'll never forget. I'll when never did, forget. When did she start there? Recently. Recently. After. Well, she's been doing stuff for them. I think it's officially now she's doing the video for them for maybe last last couple months. But she covered um, the U.S. elections for them. I remember. Right. So that's what I was going to say. One of the coolest things for me was seeing the front page of the Khalish Times. The front, the article on on page one about the U.S. elections, written by an Israeli journalist. I mean, like, talk about the confluence of everything coming together, right? Like, how cool is that? That yeah. that we can we can be at that stage. And I'll tell you, like, we're going to start to see that. I've already gotten a few requests saying, you know, do you know anybody who might want to write for us on this topic? Like, you know, this is this is where, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, we should talk. We should talk. Uh, but there's definitely a lot, a lot of opportunity. And I think that one of the things going back to the domino effect is like you just need the first one to do it. Once the first one does it, then it's very easy for numbers two, three, four, and five to come along. It normalizes um, and it. Yeah. Time, we should also give them a shout out. I mean, they did a special supplement on Pesa on Rosh Hashanah. Uh, well, Rosh Hashanah they did for sure. Oh, and Hanukkah was the second one that they did. It was incredible. And just Oh, yeah. And just to show, by the way, that it's not just the Abraham Accord countries who are doing this, really a proper shout out. And I still have the screenshots because I never thought I'd see the day this this quickly. Um, but the Arab News, which is the Saudi English paper, they changed their banners on Arab, you know, Rosh Hashanah, the, the day of Rosh Hashanah. And it said Shana Tova. And I still have those pictures. Um, That's incredible. And- That's like a country that officially doesn't have any Jews, like living in it, period. There are Jews. There no, but I, officially, officially. No, you mean no citizens. There's no citizens. There's no Jewish citizens or community. Or... There are no Jewish citizens. But but the point is, is I think, again, it talks of domino effects. Like people, who doesn't want to be part of peace and happiness? Maybe it's harder to do it on paper. And, and that's a process. And it's a whole other conversation in Saudi Arabia. Um, but it just brings joy to everybody's lives. So everybody wants yeah. to, I think, be part whatever way that they can but um you know i have it's funny i have like this like file of like all these like screenshots that to me just give me inspiration about where this where this is headed and that those are in there like literally it was like the twitter banner and the icon photo um and then i actually have a photo a screenshot whatever um from when i was here in bahrain during peace to prosperity and it's funny i just had this the other day i don't remember who it was 
Oh, it must have been the Jerusalem Post, actually, because I know that they've read Times of Israel here for a while. Um, but I have a thing that, like, literally when you typed it in, it said, like, um, this this website is blocked by the kingdom. And I remember mm-hmm. sitting there and saying, like, I'm going to take a picture because it was that same time that I was there that I said, this is going to happen soon. And I still have that. So between that and between the, the picture from, you know, from the Arab news, like, this is what inspires me every day. It's, it's one step. And sometimes it feels like it's two steps forward and one step back. And that's fine because everybody has to move at the proper pace. And the truth is, is nobody knows their people better than the leaders in this region. So some of them have to go at a quicker pace and some of them have to go at a slower pace. But what's nice is it will be easier for for numbers three, four, and five, and, and, and God willing, six to come on board because one and two have had such a, for the most part, a soft landing. It hasn't been too rocky, right? And yeah. so- um, you know, so, so it'll all happen, but until then, you know, I, you know, join me in, in finding those little moments yeah, sure. and you know, it'll be really cool to watch it all come together. You, you were kind of, um, if I understand correctly, let's, let's call it, you, you were serving as sort of an informal advisor on a lot of this kind of stuff behind the scenes about, uh, I don't know if you want to talk about that, if you want to get into that, um, kind of testing so, the, the messaging yeah, and the waters and all that. Yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of elements, you know, that go into this. It's not um, it's not like people wake up one day and they're like, you know what, today's the day. We should process. <laughs> I mean, I think sometimes they do, right? Like they say, you know, no, this is really the day. It's not going to be Wednesday. It's going to be Tuesday. But um, but it's a process, and there's been multiple things that have happened along the way. So you know, for example, like you know, interfaith has become a huge thing here. And it's not, by the way, I just want to be frank. It's not just Jewish Muslim when we talk interfaith. Yeah. I mean, Christian. We've also played a big role here, right? Um, right. We hear we hear in Israel. I mean, uh, because of our nature, um, being you know, all our news gets filtered either through an Israeli or a Jewish lens. You know, there there could be a thousand things happening in the world, but if there's an anti-Semitic incident in yeah Norway, that's going to get the attention here, even if it's one of a thousand things. And so, you know, the the Jewish interfaith aspect of the Gulf has has gotten a lot of attention here. But but I think it's a good point is that. The interfaith aspect in the Gulf has been really broad. I mean, it's been interfaith in, in the broadest and, sense. And many of them, you know, many of them have really done kind of interfaith and sense of Christianity first, right? So, like, even like the example I gave you here, uh, or not here, actually, technically, whatever, in the Emirates, but, you know, they invited the Pope. And then once the Pope came, that was the kickoff event for the Year of Tolerance. And then mm-hmm. I don't know if any of you guys remember, but there was that book that came out. Um, by the way, that book is another thing that gives me hope every day. Which book? Um, Which book? It's, it's, so the, the UAE um, came out with a book of all the different faiths and religions that are in the UAE. And really, it was really, really well represented. And on the cover, um, you know, is, is, uh, is the president of the Jewish community wearing his talis full out there. Like, there was no secrets. And um, that was really incredible. So, but the point is, it's like, you know, the Pope kicked off the year of tolerance. Um, in terms of the Saudis, the first, I mean, they brought the massive evangelical delegation. Um, and then, you know, then they brought the Jewish delegation, etc. Bahrain's different. I mean, because, you know, Bahrain, Bahrain has always had a Jewish community. So they're not like new to Jews at all. Um, they're new to Israel, but they're not new to Jews. So I think that, you know, interfaith diplomacy, which is a phrase that's now been, you know, thrown out there, that was kind of the first, you know, foray, but we've all known, I mean, even some of the countries that don't have relations with Israel now, we all know that it's been reported that they're doing, they do things on the security front, on the tech front. Um, And so there's a lot of 
things that kind of happen behind the scenes and a lot of things that happen beforehand. One of which, to your point, Dan, is this message testing, um, which has to go on, which is, you know, and it, it, when it came to the Accords, it kind of happened in three ways, if you think about it, right? They had a message test in Israel, they had a message test in their countries, and then they had a message test in, in America because America was kind of the, you know, the, the matchmaker here. So what is you know, a message a test? Sorry. I'm sorry. What you, this term message <laughs> test. Yeah, message test. So meaning, you know, one of the things, if you remember, when um, when all these governments announce that they're going to normalize, they, they, they share messaging with their people. Why are we doing this, right? What's the benefits? How does it impact you? What's the opportunity? Those are messages that are pre-drafted. So, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, I told you before that the UAE, that I knew something was up when the year of tolerance but I'll tell you the day I knew that it was happening, happening was the day that Ambassador Yusuf Al-Ataba, the uh, UA ambassador to America, when he published that op-ed in the Israeli newspaper, mm-hmm. there was just no way. There was just no way. I remember I, I, remember, I was like, I'm going to get a copy of that paper. And I have it because I was like, this is the moment. This is the moment. Absolutely. And, um, and, and, and by the way, <laughs> we didn't talk about that, but it's a good point to bring up. Like, talk about the role that media played. I mean, media pretty much kicked this whole thing off. Yeah. Or, Right? Remember when the two Etihad planes landed with supplies and they were denied? You guys yeah, they that? were rejected because they landed at Ben Gurion and the Palestinians would found it politically exactly. difficult to accept supplies right. that had to go through an Israeli right. intermediary. But again, if you remember, I mean, that's the Emiratis. You know, it's funny. I think that's one of the first times that I really saw the influencers come out in droves and they were like, we just gave, we're, we're offering you COVID support and COVID, it's humanitarian aid. And that was, I think, one of the first times I ever kind of saw them, they, them break so to speak, in terms of messaging there. Um, but yeah, it's not, you know, they have to test it because anything that happens in this part of the world, like, you know, yes, yes, there are kings and yes, there are monarchies, but like they, they, they're not going to make a step if their country is completely not right, in right. place to do it. So they do have to message test it. And, you know, very often they'll use different vehicles in order to do it. So like all the publicity around the year of tolerance or all the publicity around peace to prosperity, which arguably are two massive cornerstone events that led to where we are today all that media i mean you you can bet you can bet as much as you want that like those governments they were reading every single thing social traditional everything that was said about that to know where did like you know what's the litmus test where are people today um and you know again i think peace to prosperity was was huge in that i don't i don't think there were israeli journalists not that i remember at least at when the pope came to the emirates but there were seven of them you know that that came to you know that that came to bahrain and i just i'll never forget like seeing them i mean this was for many of them this was the first time they had come to the gulf maybe they maybe visited other arab countries um you know but they had never visited the gulf before and this was this was a really unique experience for them i don't know if you guys remember but it was also the first time they had a minion in the shul i remember that yeah so were you were you involved in, in in this kind of message testing in any way, were you kind of advising in some kind of? Uh, so manner? I mean, the, basically, what I would say is is that they all have kind of you know they they work with people to kind of share the message. It doesn't yeah. come directly from the government, as we just talked about some of the examples. So you know, we have clients who are involved in that, and we help on the PR side. That's how I would kind of you know address mm-hmm. that. But um, you know, the it's it was all done very strategically. But yeah. um, I only when we spoke about that now that I realized like that's like a huge thing that we should have probably given we should probably give a little bit more time to but like you know talk about like that op-ed that op-ed that 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 uh, ambassador Alateba wrote it was it was so it was so important for so many reasons because it also shows the power of going to the people right, right? I mean, like something you can do today exactly right it's something that you, that you that you can do today um and by the way I mean it's you know it's something I think that that um you know 
that probably, you know, President Trump kind of really put on the map, right? Because like he went to Twitter and he kind of shared his message direct with people. And then we've seen that now like manifest itself in all different countries, you know, post, you know, post that experience. But, um, you know, he took a traditional platform, the newspaper, and he wrote directly to the people. He wrote in Hebrew. Do you guys remember that? He wrote the op-ed in I do. Hebrew. It was in Why Not? Yeah. And it was, and it was very, it was, it was a very important and strategic thing. And I think that, you know, that was the moment I was like, okay, this is for sure. Like now, and I'll never forget when, when the Emirates announced, I remember saying to certain people and certain clients, like Bahrain is next. I don't know if it's tomorrow, but like it's next. And I knew it. And and what's so funny is now, if you think about it, they're pretty much about a month apart, right? Like right. UAE was at the the 14th and Bahrain was the 11th. Um, and, and now, you know, sometimes like we made that comment earlier that like, you know, that Bahrain, sometimes people forget about Bahrain, but the truth is, is Bahrain does all their announcements exactly at the same pace. They just do it the same four weeks later, but they signed on four weeks yeah. later. Right. So I think what's cool to watch is like the Bahrainis, they get to observe how like the announcements at the Emirates and then how they're taken. And then they get to like make tweaks if they want to. Sure. And here it's in some ways a much, it's kind of, it's very, it's, it's even smoother sailing because they get to see the best practices and get to apply it. Um, and so, you know, it's really, really exciting. And, and it comes down literally every announcement. Can you, can you imagine Saudi Arabia is, is watching this and, and also learning and kind of trying, do you, do you think Saudi Arabia, this is my sense, by the way, that is like, maybe a year or two behind and is, is trying to already pave the the groundwork. You, you mentioned the, was it Al Arabiya that had the Rosh Hashanah special? And it's just kind of like, okay, we, yeah. we saw it work. Arab news. Arab news, sorry. Arab. You, you said, you know, my sense, and, and I think I mentioned this in a previous podcast, is that the UAE seems to be kind of like the R&D lab for the Arab world, or at least the Arab Gulf. And so Saudi Arabia is watching the UAE and saying, okay, this is how they did it. This is how it played out. We need to kind of follow the same path. I don't know. I'm not sure everybody in Saudi Arabia would love that statement either. Um, because again, when you're, uh, when you kind of study this region, you know, first moves are supposed to be Saudi moves. Um, but I, and by the way, I think that, you know, when Bahrain announced, if you remember, um, they actually said like, you know, they, they, they had done this with Saudi, with Saudi blessing. That was sure. very important them to get across um and i think that the saudis the saudis it was a little like they've pumped the brakes a little bit but they, they i mean if we go back if we go back to even the summer i mean there were many things that showed that they were already in kind of the testing of messages stage i mean yeah. they, were, they were pretty long um but i think that the the dynamics in saudi arabia are very different but again they're they're doing much more now in the interfaith space and interfaith right. is definitely the first it's definitely like the, the it's, first a, thing it's a preparation stage for 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 israel and it's funny because we tend to think you know sometimes we here in israel and certainly jews in america like to say you know when it's convenient we say jews don't represent israel israel doesn't represent the jews and yet sometimes at least for much of the world israel definitely represents the jews and jews definitely represent israel so if you're you're if you're certainly an arab country or a muslim country trying to to lay the groundwork for a potential normalization with Israel. It starts with two years before being conciliatory towards Jews. And and that's something that I think a lot of uh, our American listeners might not want to admit exists or might not want to believe exists. Right. And the other thing I would say is that um, there are a lot of very influential American Jewish 
um, business people or people in other spaces who have had longstanding relationships with these governments. And in many yeah. ways, I think that um, them, their relationships with these Americans actually helps to pave the way. Because, you know, remember, like, you referenced this earlier, but a lot of a lot of what we're now seeing is kind of this um, this breaking away the layers of the onion and what they've all been taught for years. And, and right. by the way, we should give proper credit where it's due. I mean, it took it was years of being taught a certain yeah. way, and they're down barriers within months. I mean, it's truly remarkable. Um, but I think in a lot of ways, once they were closed with that businessman, with that rabbi, with that you know whatever, like then it became much easier you know to do it. Like Kai Seed, I don't know if you do you know Kai Seed is it's the um, the interfaith center, the Saudi interfaith center um, that uh, that used to be in for a bunch of years, and I think it's now in the process of moving to Geneva. Uh, but they have rabbis on the board of that, you know. Um, so I think they first got to know like you know the, the, the Jewish leaders, and then it's much easier to then say, you know, and then I think by the way, I think that's part of the role that these Jewish leaders have played, even is saying, you know, next step is Israel, because for us, Israel's not a political thing. It's not. I mean, I'm an American Jew. Israel's not a political thing. It's a religious, you know, belief that we have, right? And you know, to the point we made earlier, they're very in tune with religious beliefs because it's something that they're very focused on as well. So I think the two really kind of dovetail hand in hand. And I think that that's why some of the countries that you've seen come first, it's because they had that. I mean, there are many American Jews who have very, you know, good relationships yeah. with, with with the government level for the UAE. Um, in terms of Bahrain, obviously, you know, we have that as well. Um, you know, Bahrain has a Jewish community who is, you know, very important here. And, and by the way, were for just the the here meaning for the region i think that they're really a beacon of hope in terms of what can jewish life look like because they've been here forever and ever about 150 and years yeah it's iraqi jews mostly how many people are we talking about 40 i think that they officially say it's it's under 50 yeah. um but uh but the point is is that you know i think um and by the way bahrain you know, we should give credit where it's due. I mean, Bahrain also was the first Arab country to appoint a Jewish ambassador, which yeah. is a huge. Right. And I, I think it's also the only, I mean, it's the only one still. And that was, that was a few years ago. Well, but, there's not really Jewish communities in the rest of the Arab world. Well, that, see, that's the other thing. Like, this is the only place where you will find Jewish citizens. You'll find Jewish. And Morocco. What? And Morocco. Oh, well, I mean, talking about the Gulf. Oh, the Gulf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and so my point is, is, you know, I think that's one. And the other thing that I've said before, and I've actually done research on this, um, most of the leaders at the Gulf, in the Gulf, you know, the Gulf in general is going through transition. Like now you have a lot of crown princes coming up the ranks, right? A lot of them have been educated in the West. Right. So like they were educated in the West. They all, you know, they all go to schools in America, schools in in, in Europe. They went to schools with Jews. Yeah, yeah, right? I noticed oh, that. normal people. And they became friendly. I, I have a, a friend of mine, for example, um, who, who went to school with one of the cabinet ministers in, in Saudi. I'm like, very good friends to this day. And they just, whatever, like, so for years, Israel was just something they never discussed. And it was fine. And now a lot of them do talk about it. They just don't talk about it openly. But my point is, is like, we're also seeing a real change here just from like a like at a societal level at a, at um, again like new leadership level so i think that and there's a lot of opportunity and i think for those of us who again i'm going to put in this bucket of being you know middle east and gulf nerds every time every day there's like another there's like another thing where it's just like oh put that in the basket that's one we're one step closer and you know and there'll be people from you know today until the end of time that will make predictions of who's next but you know what i always say like in terms of who's next, we all have thoughts in terms of who will be next or who should be next. 
but we shouldn't sell, set ourselves up that if it's not who we think next, but somebody else comes along next, like we shouldn't set it up like, oh, bummer, that should have been. Because at the end of the day, this will happen. There's no question it's going to happen. Um, and I mean, we're seeing massive shifts. I mean, there's meetings, there's, there's reports of Saudi and Iran meeting. I mean, if they can meet, then surely, you know, Israel can establish relations with other Gulf counterparts. But, um, but my point is, is like, you know, let's, let's look at it from the whole sum, sure. right? Like we're, we're now- how, sh- how shocked would you be if Iran normalized relations with Israel? <laughs> yeah, pretty shocking. But I haven't seen any of those key messages come yeah. up yet. Yeah, I'm going to say uh, that. I, I wanted to jump back to the message testing thing. And yeah. that that's something that all governments do. Um, and, and, you know, people talk about, you know, I-, I Every government, whether they're officially democratic or not, has to be beholden to their people. Otherwise, you risk a revolution. Yeah, which is not something that this region is, you know, a stranger right. to. And, and so, you know, we, we've talked about this in, in different episodes. We talked about this when we had Emirati guests on and, you know, the, the flack they sometimes get for not being democratic in the sense that the West is democratic. And, and on the other hand, they're very in tune with the feelings of their people. And so every government, whether they're technically elected or not, or appointed, they have to be in tune with their people's, with the, the, the public's um, feelings. And every government democratically elected or not is always trying to engineer the public's feelings um, through, you know, through PR, through social media, through this. I remember Obama during the, um, when he was trying to push the JCPOA, I remember this very clearly. And who was his top national security advisor? It was a writer named Ben Rhodes, not a national security expert. It was a writer. And and they kept pushing this line that it's either this deal or war, and this deal or war, this deal or war. And most people, the public in America, was not discerning about this. And they bought it. And they bought it. And, and that's just clearly one of these things. And so, you know, you can talk about what public perception is, but at the end of the day, it can be changed and it can be engineered. And that's a good thing and a bad thing. You know, I'm just saying this kind of from a neutral perspective. And and so in a lot of ways, understanding public perception, understanding how to engineer it, how to manipulate it, how to just communicate. Um, this is kind of we're living in this crazy world where anyone can talk to anyone. Anyone can publish um, and and. and we the consumers have to be a lot more discerning about who we're listening to, where we're getting our information from. To be very clear, when our governments talk to us, all governments, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, whether it's Likud or or Yeshatid, whether you know it's a monarchy or a democracy, they're all trying to push a message. They're always trying to engineer uh, some some kind of move, some kind of public perception. That that's just how governments work. They need legitimacy. They need public support to do these things. And we have to take that, we have to listen to it, we have to watch it, we have to understand the context that it's in, also look at alternative news sources, also look at social media, and it's just our job as consumers, I think, in this day and age, you know, you talked about Walter Cronkite, it's just become a lot more complicated. We have to be more savvy as consumers, as citizens, as participants in this world, and um, yeah, I think we got a, we got a glimpse of this, um, uh, uh, you know, talking to you, Ariella. And, and I also think that's what we put out into social media. I yeah. would say the same thing because, you know, to your point, like I would say perception becomes reality. Yeah. And so it's also because because many of us, you know, we have followers who come and they'll engage with us. Like it also puts the responsibility on us to Absolutely. make sure that we're retweeting that like that they are people that are, you know, really getting their their news, you know, directly from that location. So we're part of that that whole 
that whole chain, um, so to speak. And so I think it's important that we, we remind ourselves about that too. Definitely. Now, yeah, I'm going to ask you uh, kind of just to wrap this up. Um, I know you have to go. Um, and, and we appreciate you jumping on this call with us. You're a very busy woman. And, uh, oh, it's my pleasure. It's always and it, fun talking. And it's been fascinating. Um, a lot of people have already been out to Dubai. Some people yeah. will go to Abu Dhabi. If you had to recommend to, let's break it up this in, into two parts, because the answer could be in two parts, to the Israeli traveler and then to the Western traveler who's never been to the Gulf region best place to go visit the coolest thing they need to see the coolest experience they need to experience that's not a bucket list thing you know i'm not talking about burj khalifa or or i don't know a a traditional bedouin experience in a tent with camels if you had to recommend one thing anywhere in the gulf both for the where, where the israeli can go and then broadly where let's say an american can go what would you recommend people do before i say that i'll just give you a very quick thing about camels because you brought that up I love do you camels. know that camels in the gulf and camels in israel are different what do you mean how so one hump versus two humps it's a true thing seriously i didn't next see i didn't see any two hump camels in the gulf no no, no i'm so serious next time you come I'll, i'm gonna I'll, next time you come i'll, I'll show you but i'll this be there i'll be there soon widely reported on this um okay so what do i think so listen i think you're right i mean everybody knows all the spots we we could everybody could come up with a list of the top 10 places to go the frame etc but what i would tell you is like for um honestly for both um you know for for israeli and for american tourists i think dubai has a lot to offer but it's very it's very it's it's a tourism city yes. right like i always say and people always get a good laugh but like it's true. I mean, it's like if New York and Las Vegas had a baby, it would be Dubai, right? right? Like it's with, with much cleaner streets. <laughs> with much cleaner streets. That that is true. No um, but because that's that's Dubai in a nutshell. Um, Abu Dhabi is like a little bit more of a feel of like kind of um, it's more of an Arabic feel. But honestly, um, and I say that, and I'm sitting here, so it's just whatever. But um, I would I would come here. Like I I love Bahrain. I've I've been here. I've been coming back and forth for years. There's something. There's something that's actually a little bit reminiscent of like the streets of Jerusalem here, to be very honest mm. with you. Like it's 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 old world. It's you'll still find cobblestone streets. You'll find a sook, which I mean, you'll find that in Dubai also. But um, there's just something to me that just always feels like home. And you cannot I mean, hospitality all over this part of the world is, is phenomenal. It is. Hospitality in Saudi Arabia is phenomenal. Like it's all over. Um, but here, like here, it just it's like it just feels like home. And, and I think anybody, no matter where you're from, feels that way. And it doesn't have, you don't have to be a Jew to appreciate that. Anybody feels that way. Um, everybody here, the taxi drivers are all locals, which, you know, Dan, you, you know, from, from Dubai, that's not the experience there. Yeah. So they'll, they'll drive you by and be like, that's where I went to school. And, and it's like, there's like a real sense of pride. Um, but there's just something so special about this place. And it's, it's hard to put into words. Um, Dan knows it because I talk about it all the time on, on the UIBC side, um, but, uh, but it's really, really, and there's a lot of opportunity here. There's a lot of opportunity here as well. Awesome. It's very, it's very small too, right? It's, it's like an Island that's basically the size of like, correct me I if I'm wrong. Here, so. I feel like we probably have some Bahrainis who are following this so maybe they can chime in and tell us, but I'm pretty sure there's like, I don't want to say the wrong thing, but I think I read somewhere there's like 33 islands or something. But the, ma- the main island that you're on right now, how long would it take to drive around the island? Not too long. It's about, um, I think you can get most places within 35, 40 minutes. Wow. Um, wow. But it's it's really the perfect, here, for the American Jews who are traveling, it's perfect because you can do like a very easy two-night, three-day situation here and see a good, you know, I don't know if you know this, but um, oil, the first place it was discovered in the Gulf was here. Yeah. 
Yes, cool. You can actually see the original place that oil was discovered. Um, you could do pearl diving because pearls, like sweetwater pearls, all come from here as well. Um, but um, there's a lot that you can do. So this is kind of the perfect stopover location for a few days before you head on, um, you know, to, to Israel. You could do it in Dubai also, but a lot of people will probably feel like that wasn't a long enough time if they yeah. just did two nights mm -hmm. and three days, right? So, um, so yeah. So Bahrain to, to chill and feel at home and feel like a little bit more of a, maybe an authentic experience. 100, 100%. And sometimes when it gets really busy in Dubai and you need a weekend away, I've actually, I've had friends who have taken me up on this. I said, just go to Bahrain for a weekend. It's very easy. It's, it's for those of us in America, the, the reference point is it's the same as flying from New York to DC. Yeah. It's 45. Very close. Nothing. Um, and in the Gulf, you, you fly in a Dreamliner for the 50 minute flight, which always gives nice. me a good laugh. Um, it's like the biggest it's plane we can find and put it on a puddle. In the Gulf, everything is bigger and better. <laughs> That's right. But uh, I always joke, I say, why can't we get that plane to go to America? Like a Dreamliner at that point, it could literally fly to America. Right? We still don't have the flights to America, but God willing, that'll happen soon. Absolutely. Um, but the point is, there's really, there's a lot to do here. Um, and I would just say that I, as a, as somebody who really enjoys your podcast, I just thank you guys for what you, awesome. what you bring as well. Um, thank but you. this is really a fun, a fun conversation. And it was just like, you know, like our usual chat. So exactly. Exactly. Awesome except, having you. Except not at two thirty in the morning. Except not at two thirty. It's really lovely. I, I always joke. I get more sleep in the golf because I get to like you know wake up at six. It's nice. Exactly. Um, but anyway. And hopefully uh, we'll meet up soon when I come uh, out to the golf to visit. If you're still there. Absolutely. Looking looking forward. I'll see you then. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much. Getting out there as well. So. Take care, hopefully. Ariella Steinreich. Thank you for being on Juanced, and we will see you all next time. Bye bye. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.